uh, it's good to see you, um, all of you this morning. Um, today's the second Sunday of Advent, uh, like Br- uh, Blake said earlier. And uh, so we get to light the second Advent candle. Um, the circle here um, with all the candles uh, represents God's never-ending love that he showed to us by sending Jesus to earth. And the four candles, uh, we light one each Sunday uh, of Advent, the four Sundays leading up uh, to Christmas Day. Uh, each one represents promise, light, love, and hope. So today we get to light the second purple candle, uh, which symbolizes uh, the radiant light of the Christ child. If anything catches on fire while I'm preaching, just let me know, and uh, I will put it out. Well, I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, I'm, I love the, our Advent series every year because I, I'm just truly thankful to be a part of a church where um, so many of the leaders of the church are able to preach um, and to share with us. And um, I know that Bryce is thankful for that too because it takes a load off of his shoulders uh, some of the time. Some things we just make him do, but uh, he, got, he got the heart. Of the four uh, Advent sermons, he got the hardest one. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm grateful uh, to be able to preach to you this morning. Um, it's always a fun challenge for me uh, because it's not something that I typically do, but I'm happy to be able to do it this morning. Um, I love uh, Christmas time. I love, did, were you waving at me? Did you, oh, oh, I thought you were trying to get my attention. Um, I love Christmas time. I love Advent. I've always loved this time of year uh, ever since I was a kid. Uh, the cheesy Christmas music, the the lights, the trees, uh, the the sappy movies. I love it all. Uh, it's always been something that I've loved. It's always been my favorite time of year, and it still is. Uh, I got married the week before Christmas uh, 14 years ago, and so it's just December is the best time of the year for me, and I love it. Uh, so uh, when I was 11 years old, I became a Christian, and that was the first time I'd actually thought about the fact of, thought about the whole Jesus and Christmas thing being linked, that they were, uh, that one caused the other. And uh, so I, I began then to, to start to consider the idea that Christmas was uh, an opportunity to celebrate the coming of Christ to earth. And, um, but what really cemented this time as a season of worship for me, and not just a time of the year that I really enjoy, uh, was when I began to celebrate Advent. Um, and that probably, I, I'm, as far as I can remember, started uh, when the first time I listened to Andrew Peterson's Christmas album called Behold the Lamb of God. Every year I talk about this, and I'm probably going to talk about it every year until I die. But uh, that album changed my life because it's a cycle of songs that tells the story of the coming of Christ, but it doesn't start with Matthew chapter 1 because, as I've come to learn over the years, that story doesn't start in Matthew chapter 1. It doesn't start in Genesis chapter 1. It's a story that has been going on for all of eternity. And will go on for all of eternity. Uh, so anyway, so the, that, that album, it traces the story of the coming of Christ all the way back to um, Moses in Egypt, kind of what we've been talking about in Exodus. Um, it, it goes through the, uh, the entire history of Israel, of, of coming out of Egypt and entering the promised land, and uh, through kings and through um, slavery and uh, captivity uh, through the long years of silence when no one heard from God, when there was no prophet uh, that spoke to the people. And then we, we see Joseph and Mary and the shepherds. And then finally in the end it connects it to us. And uh, so that was, 
the first time I'd considered, I had considered the story of Jesus being that large and perhaps larger. Uh, and so now that we, we celebrate Advent as a family, it's, it's, it's turned this, this season into a season of worship and not just a season of, of good times and fun presents and that sort of thing. Um, uh, Advent is a season of waiting, of anticipating Christ's coming, uh, and of reflecting on the long, beautiful story of God's faithfulness to his people over thousands and thousands of years. God has helped me to, cons- Advent has helped me to consider Christ's coming more deeply from the perspective of the characters in the biblical narrative, and this is a really important thing. Whenever we're reading scripture, our understanding of what is happening should go much deeper than just skimming the basic facts of the story. As much as we can, we should put ourselves in the shoes of the characters and consider things from their points of view. What must it have been like for Isaiah to passionately warn Israel again and again, only to be ignored? What might the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem felt like for a very pregnant Mary? What may have been going through the head of the woman caught in adultery as Jesus saved her from being stoned to death? Why did Jesus answer questions in a way that alienated some people? How is the story of the wedding at Cana connected with what comes before it and what comes after it uh, in, the, in the narrative? Why did Luke include all the details he did in his gospel? And why did John leave out what he left out in his gospel? Who was the original audience of what we're reading? What effect would reading these words have had on that first audience? And then, after we've asked those questions to really understand what we're reading and what it meant to the people who wrote it and who read it, then how does this apply to my life? Um, The answers to these questions aren't always very apparent, and they're not always uh, essential to understanding what's in the text. But the more, that, the more space we open up in our minds to consider deeply what Scripture says, uh, the more impactful it will be. So with that in mind, today we're going to take a look at the life of Joseph, um, Jesus' adoptive father. We're going to see what the coming of the Messiah meant to him, how God showed his glory through Joseph, and what we can learn from the fruit that his life bore, how his story affects ours. So, who was Joseph. We'll start by taking a look at Joseph's family. In Matthew chapter 1, we get our first glimpse of Joseph in the genealogy of Jesus. So if you have your Bible or if you have a Bible app, go ahead and open that up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be hanging out there most of the day. And it's always better for you to read along with me because I might get something wrong. Um, So um, Matthew chapter 1, there's this long genealogy of Jesus in the... um, King James Version, it's so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's truly thrilling reading. Uh, but Andrew, uh, on this, this Christmas, Christmas album I mentioned, uh, Andrew Peterson wrote a song uh, that, where he just sings all of Matthew's begats. And uh, so I'm going to recite that for you now uh, because it's important and it's also fun. I'm not going to sing it, um, but you should look it up because it's fun. So, um, but if, you, if, you're, if you're looking at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, these names will um, be familiar. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashon, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse he had David, who we know as king. My kids love this. David he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him, he had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa, 
Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Ammon, who was Aman, who was father of a good boy named Josiah, who, fought, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. Which isn't really true, but it rhymes. Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliad. Then he had Eliezer, who had Mathan, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely. I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. And I love that song. And it's had the odd effect that most of my family has memorized Jesus' genealogy from uh, Matthew chapter 1. So we see from that silly song but wonderful um, list of names that Joseph was a part of a much, much larger story of God's faithfulness to his people. Joseph was proof that throughout history God was preserving a remnant of true believers in spite of their mistakes, their rebellion, and their faltering attempts at obedience. Joseph was proof that God was keeping the promises he made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. Joseph just didn't know it yet. Matthew's genealogy isn't exhaustive, uh, and if you want to dig deeper into that and compare it with Luke's genealogy, it's kind of an interesting uh, study. But Matthew includes a truckload of interesting characters that populate Jesus' family tree. It's kind of like when you're scrolling through a show on Netflix and you're trying to figure out what episode you want to watch. Every episode's good, and once you dive into a particular episode, you see how they all fit together to form this greater narrative. Um, like when you see that shot of the crock pot at the beginning of This Is Us. Um, so then you, whatever story you zoom in on, whichever one you choose, um, it's connected to the life of Jesus. At the beginning, we see the great, complicated, sinful yet redeemed fathers of the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. And we could pull years of sermons just out of those four generations. God promised Abraham that his family would outnumber the stars of the sky, and by his grace, it would. He repeated this promise to Isaac and to Jacob. All of these men were faithful to the Lord, and also unfaithful. Uh, And then we get to Jacob and Leah's son, Judah. Judah was the one that suggested that they sell Old Testament Joseph into slavery rather than kill him. So, you know, he had some character, I suppose. Uh, Later in Judah's life, through a twisted story of deceit, selfishness, and prostitution, Judah fathers the twins Perez and Zerah with his daughter-in-law. That story is a doozy. Later on, we see that Salmon fathered a son named Boaz with Rahab. And we remember Rahab was the prostitute that hid the Israelite spies that were scouting Jericho before the walls came tumbling down. Her life was preserved, and she married into the nation of Israel and had a family. Her son was Boaz, who we know as the redeemer of Ruth, the widow, who was a foreigner that refused to leave her mother-in-law, Naomi, after the death of their husbands. A few generations after Boaz and Ruth, we see the youngest son of Jesse, the longed-for king of Israel, David. David's kingdom would be established forever. And like Blake read last week, Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah would reign on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. David was Israel's warrior hero and a a songwriter, a man after God's own heart, and he was a murdering adulterer. We all know the story of David's laziness and lust that led to his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. 
But God, in his grace, gave them a son named Solomon, who ascended to the throne after his father. After Solomon, we see generations and generations of, uh, of kings. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that they were kings of mixed character. Some of them were uh, all right. Some of them were really great. Some of them were terrible. Um, there were prisoners. There were exiles. And then we see a carpenter named Joseph. So before we hear anything about Joseph, we know that he comes from a family line with legendary stories of holy acts and heroic feats and with scandalous stories of treachery and grief. Being adopted into this family gave Jesus a very human heritage. This family tree included foreigners, egregious sinners, faithful servants, great leaders, tyrants, and many whose names we'll never know. To me, this adds credence to the scripture in Hebrews 4 that says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He can sympathize with our weaknesses and with our temptations and with our sins, and he can even sympathize with our family tree. By being adopted into this family, Jesus inherited the birthright and the legacy of Abraham, and he inherited the kingdom and the royal esteem of David. But because God was his father, he inherited all of those things without the sin and misery that always plagued the lives of his earthly forefathers. forefathers. He was at once completely human and completely God completely without sin. This was the heritage from which Joseph came. I doubt that he spent much time dwelling on the fact that he was descended from royalty. Um, He was not a wealthy man. He was not a religious leader. The Bible says that Joseph was a carpenter from an insignificant town called Nazareth. Later on, uh, when Jesus was calling his disciples, Philip was trying to get Nathaniel to come check out this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, this is the equivalent of, like, a backwoods hick town where nothing good has ever come out of it, and nobody expects anything good to come out of it in the future. Joseph had humble working-class roots in a town that was the butt of first-century jokes, and yet his family story was anything but insignificant. So what kind of man did this place and this family produce? So uh, that's Joseph's family. Now we're going to take a look at Joseph's character, who, who Joseph was. The first thing the Bible says about Joseph in this, in verse 18 of Matthew 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Um, We read in the Gospel of Luke that uh, Gabriel had appeared to Mary, um, and who was betrothed to Joseph. Uh, so it's basically the, the betrothal then. It wasn't just like a, hey, will you marry me? And it's just kind of a loose agreement until a wedding actually happens. It was like you, were, you had made a firm commitment that this was happening. We just haven't had the official wedding yet. Like, so in the, in the eyes of uh, the law, in the eyes of everyone in this culture, they were already legally joined together, um, even though they had not been, uh, they'd not had the actual wedding yet. So she's betrothed to Joseph. Uh, and Gabriel appears to her and explains the miraculous conception of the Messiah in her womb. And Mary responds with faith and worship. Uh, so as, as soon as she found, finds out about Jesus, she travels to visit her cousin Elizabeth because Gabriel had informed her that Elizabeth, who was extremely old and had never had any children, was pregnant, was six months pregnant with her son, who would be John the Baptist. Um, 
it is reasonable to assume that this passage in Matthew takes place after Mary returns. Because um, by this point, she looks like she's pregnant. Um, and Scripture doesn't tell us whether or not Mary had a chance to attempt an explanation to Joseph or if he just saw her and understood what the case was. But, I mean, let's be real. Even if she had explained to him what had happened, I mean, he probably wouldn't have believed it. It is a literally inconceivable thing to, like, say. Um, I intended that pun. Um, so how, however it went down, Joseph uh, was agonizing over the fact that his betrothed wife was pregnant with a baby that he did not father. Uh, I mean, can you imagine this? Like, Joseph loved Mary. He trusted her. And she had given him absolutely no reason to distrust her. Uh, if you remember from last year when we discussed Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, she was clearly steeped in the truth of Scripture, and she was passionately following God. Uh, perhaps this is why Joseph uh, was attracted to her in the first place. This wasn't a girl that was like, ah, she's okay. If I marry her, maybe I can kind of wrangle her in and teach her about God. And, you know, this wasn't like a missionary engagement. She loved the Lord, and... Um, and so now Joseph is ruined because he feels like he's been betrayed. He thinks that the, the woman he was ready to spend the rest of his life with has betrayed him. Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you trusted completely? Uh, this, is what was, this is what Joseph was going through. Um, you know, how would you have responded if you had been Joseph? How would you have handled this sort of heartbreak? Um, so this passage shows us how Joseph handled it. And uh, it says a lot about who Joseph is. The first quality that Scripture ascribes to Joseph is that he was, A, a just man. Uh, Joseph cared about doing the right thing. Uh, And we'll see this fleshed out in several ways as we examine his life today. Um, He cared about holiness, about righteousness, and about justice. He knew the law of God, and it was the standard by which he lived his life. In the same way that Mary's heart overflowed with the truth of God's word, so did Joseph's. We can draw a reasonable conclusion, though the Scripture isn't clear about it. We can draw a reasonable conclusion that Joseph's father, Jacob, brought his children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This kind of faith and obedience doesn't generally come out of a vacuum. God had been transforming Joseph's heart for a long time before this episode with Mary's pregnancy. Our our catechism says, uh, as, as our catechism says, the Lord had been making Joseph holy in heart and in conduct by sanctifying him over time. He was attentive to the word of God, and he heeded what the law said. He would not and could not marry a woman who had committed adultery during their betrothal. And if, if Mary had actually committed adultery, then Joseph by no means should have married the woman. That kind of betrayal deserves just consequences. In this case, Joseph had several options. Clearly, he was going to divorce her, but he could choose how he would go about doing this. He could have publicly shamed her in a variety of ways, even up to he could have had her taken outside the city and stoned to death, right? So any, anything from what he was planning to do to what he could have done, just having her stoned to death, uh, he, he could kind of choose how he wanted to handle it. But either way, this sin couldn't go like uh, without being dealt with. He couldn't just gloss over it. It was no small matter and Joseph knew it. If he excused her sin without holding her accountable for it, then he would be ignoring God's law and downplaying God's holiness. The passage says that he was considering these things, likely in agony, but mingled with this grief was his love for Mary. He still loved her deeply. He'd been ready to marry her, to raise children with her, to share his life with her, and those feelings just don't disappear 
overnight. So we see that Joseph was a just man, <clears throat> a just man, but he was also a compassionate husband, which is B on your outline. Uh, it says Joseph was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. He was beholden to God's law, and he would see justice done, but he had compassion for Mary and planned to show grace to her in the justice that he saw. Because of his deep love for her, he would not put her to open shame. He would not call for her life to be taken. The passage says that he resolved to divorce her quietly, and I really like that choice of word. I think it says a lot about Joseph's disposition. He didn't fly off the handle and call for a mob and take her outside the city. He didn't murder her on sight. He didn't go door to door spreading rumors about how terrible and dirty Mary was. Um, He was going to spare her as much embarrassment as he could, while at the same time upholding the righteous requirements of the law. And that's compassion. That's empathy. Uh, That's love. It's fruit of God's work in his life. That's That's not the reaction of somebody who isn't faithfully following the Lord, or that's not the reaction of a new believer. That's the reaction of somebody who has been following the Lord for a long time and and understands who God is and who God expects him to be. So it's interesting to consider why the Lord let Joseph get to this point and let all this confusion happen, right? Gabriel could have very easily visited David in a dream on the same night that he went and told Mary that she was pregnant, but he didn't. Um, why did the Lord put Joseph through so much pain and confusion? Uh, John Calvin said this about the situation. I think it'll be on the screen. Joseph permitted his servant, I mean, pardon me, the Lord permitted his servant Joseph to be betrayed by ignorance into an erroneous conclusion that by his own voice he might bring him back to the right path. We look throughout the pages of Scripture and even at our own lives, uh, God has a history, a habit of allowing these sorts of things to happen. If you look at uh, just, just in Exodus, we've been, uh, for those of you that, that don't know, we've been preaching through Exodus this entire year. And uh, if you just look at the, the history of the people of Israel, God kind of like let them get out as far, you know, to where they couldn't stand up in the water anymore and they're starting to flail and they're starting to drown before he intervenes. Uh, you know, they get up. Uh, they, he didn't just go straight to the last plague and get them out of Egypt. They go through ten plagues, and things get worse for the Israelites before they get better. Uh, they, they, they come out of Egypt, and they get stuck by the Red Sea, and they're about to be killed or taken captive or both. Uh, and then God parts the Red Sea. And then, you know, the, the manna and the water from the rock, and over and over and over again, God kind of like stretches them and gets them to the point where they're desperate, and they don't have anything else to do but to call out to him. And sometimes they don't even do that. Sometimes he rescues them without them even calling out to him. Uh, so God has this, this habit of doing things. Calvin elab- elaborated on that point by saying, Hence, too, we infer that when God appears not to observe our cares and distresses, we are still under his eye. He may indeed hide himself and remain silent. But when our patience has been subjected to the trial, he will aid us at the time which his own wisdom has selected. How slow or late soever his assistance may be thought to be, it is for our advantage that it is thus delayed. You know, it's, God is, 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 is writing a story and doing a work that's way bigger than we understand. And he will do things in his own time. Uh, there's that verse in the Psalms where, uh, uh, I think it's David, uh, people are, saying things against him. And so, Where's your God? What is he doing? It's, our God's in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. 
And he still is in heaven. He still does whatever he pleases. Uh, but for his children, we can trust that he loves us and that what he is doing is for our own good, however terrible it may seem. Uh, all this reminds me of this great poem by a poet named Wendell Berry, and uh, it's called Our Real Work. I think this is going to be up there too. Our Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work, and that we know, when we no longer know which way to go, that we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded string, stream is the one that sings. So our real work, our real journey begins when we don't know what to do. This is the point that we come face to face with the reality that we try so hard to ignore. We need God, and we are nothing without him. Uh, Jesus said, uh, I think in uh, John 15, uh, where he talks about, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need God. We are nothing without him. But the flip side is what Psalm 125 says. Psalm 125 says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So this is where we find Joseph when the angel appears to him in a dream. Look at what the angel says in uh, verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Gabriel calls him son of David, as if to say, Joseph, you're more than a carpenter. Remember who you are. You are a child of God, and he uses his children to accomplish his purposes. It was no mistake that Samuel anointed the youngest and weakest of Jesse's sons to become king, and it's no mistake that you find yourself in this unimaginable situation. And then Gabriel changes Joseph's life forever. He explains that Joseph will be the adoptive father of the Savior of the world and that his wife Mary is the virgin that Isaiah spoke of in his prophecy, the prophecy that Joseph had likely heard his entire life. Therefore, Joseph, do not fear because this whole thing is a gift from God to you and to Mary and to the world. The whole world will be blessed. So we see that Joseph's entire life had been, his whole family history had been leading him up to this point, every step of his journey. And how does Joseph respond? He responds with obedience because Joseph was, uh, C, an obedient servant. Uh, verse 24 says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We don't get many details here, but we get this. Joseph did what the Lord commanded him to do. He didn't question the angel like Zechariah did um, when Gabriel announced to him that Elizabeth would have a son. He didn't wake up and run to Mary's house and double-check her story with what the angel told him. He just woke from sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Simple, direct, heartfelt obedience. It, this wasn't like blind, meaningless obedience. This wasn't obedience from fear or self-preservation or coercion. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the sovereign king of Joseph's life, and he loved him. And when the king commanded him, he obeyed from loyalty and from love. We can probably imagine a sense of relief that he felt too. The Mary that he knew and loved was still the Mary that he knew and loved. She had been faithful to Joseph 
and she, and she too had presented herself as a servant of her king. Imagine now the joy and excitement and the purpose that he felt in sharing his life with Mary. The adventure was going to be so much more than either of them could have imagined. Something good was certainly coming out of Nazareth. So Joseph woke from sleep and, sleep and took Mary as his wife. And he didn't physically consummate the relationship until after the baby was born. There would be no mistaking that this was the glorious work of God himself. And when the baby was born, Joseph and Mary obeyed the Lord by calling his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, because, of course, that is exactly what God was doing. This isn't the only time we see Joseph's obedience in Scripture. Before Mary had Jesus, uh, Caesar Augustus called for a census and said everybody had to head back to their family's hometown to be counted in the census. So Joseph has an extremely pregnant wife. What does he do? Packs her up, and they head to Bethlehem. He obeys the, the authorities that were put over him. Um, there is a, certainly a time to stand up to corrupt laws and uh, corrupt leaders and to, defile, to defy uh, evil decrees and, and laws. But Joseph honored God in his respect for and obedience to the government. He was giving Caesar what Caesar was due. After, after, he, after Mary had Jesus, and they're still in Bethlehem, for a while, the wise men from the east come uh, and visited Jesus in Bethlehem. And after they left, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream again and warned him that Herod was about to go on a rampage. And he said to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt and stay there until I tell you that the coast is clear. So he woke from sleep. He rose and took Mary and Jesus by night to Egypt and stayed there until Herod died. Right? He woke up and he did what the angel told him to do. After Herod died, the angel appeared to him again in a dream and commanded him to go back to Israel. So when he woke from sleep, he took Jesus and Mary back to Israel. He was then warned in yet another dream that Herod's son was making trouble in Judea, so he took his little family to Nazareth. So four dreams, one government edict, and in every instance, Joseph honored God by obeying. Um, and... Scripture, we're kind of going over everything that the Scripture says about Joseph today, which isn't a whole lot. But when you look at these, you see a pattern in his life. He was honoring God by obeying. And that's kind of the key. Joseph obeyed God because he honored God. He loved the Lord with all his mind, his heart, his mind, and his strength. He was a faithful worshiper. Just the next, uh, next thing on your outline. Joseph lived a life of authentic worship. How do we know this? We've already seen that Joseph knew God's law and was passionate about keeping it. Alongside that, he was mirroring God's great love and compassion. He obeyed God's commands to him in his dreams. And beyond this, though, we see that Joseph continued to faithfully worship the Lord after Jesus's birth. In Luke chapter 2, it says this, uh, at the end of eight days after Jesus was born, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of tur turtle doves or two young pigeons. So at this point, Jesus has laid aside his heavenly glory and has taken on the helpless form of a baby boy. And this didn't stop Jesus from fulfilling the law in every way. His earthly father made sure that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day 
And he made sure that Jesus was brought to Jerusalem to be presented to the Lord along with the appropriate sacrifice. Can you imagine how Joseph and Mary must have felt bringing the Messiah to his own temple? You know? We see how uh, Simeon and Anna responded in that story when, when the Savior shows up. Uh, and I can only imagine that that made it even more significant for Joseph and Mary. They didn't realize it, but one day Jesus would return to Jerusalem to fulfill the law of God again. And when he did, it would be completely fulfilled. And Jesus would declare that it is finished. Luke 2 continues by saying, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So Joseph's worship wasn't just confined to his um, personal experience. He led his family in worship. It says that every year they went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Um, And as they, as, when people would make the trek to Jerusalem for the different feasts like Passover and Pentecost and all those things, um, there are a set of psalms that are called the Songs of Ascent. That it is said, the tradition says that these are the songs that people would sing as they ascended the, the, ter- the terrain to Jerusalem. And so here they are, they're headed to Jerusalem, uh, and they're singing the Songs of Ascent. And Psalm 132 says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So here Joseph and Mary walking alongside their firstborn son, singing of the day when the increase of his government and of peace would know no end. Here are Joseph and Mary bringing their firstborn son to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And little did they know that they were in the presence of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the whole world. So Joseph was a faithful worshiper and a godly example to his family. Um, He had a profound influence on his family. And because of that, he was also a loving father. Luke 2 tells the familiar story of when the family went up for Passover when Jesus was 12. They went to Jerusalem like they always did, and after the feast, they, Joseph and Mary left to head back home with their group of relatives and family and friends that traveled with them. Unbeknownst to his parents, Jesus stayed back in Jerusalem, and no one realized he was missing until they were about a day's journey away from Jerusalem. And so after searching among the friends and relatives that they traveled with, they, uh, Joseph and Mary returned back to Jerusalem to find their son. So verse 46 of Luke 2 says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So three days. Can you imagine not knowing where your kid is for three days? Right? And it's not like you can like track their iPhone or you can see where they posted on it. Like you don't know where your kid is for three days. 
Can you imagine the guilt that they must have felt? They had been entrusted as the caretakers of the Savior of the world, and they had lost him. You know? They searched frantically in great distress, just like any of us would have done for our children. This is the love of a parent. Joseph fretted for his son because he loved him deeply. Psalm 103 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Joseph's compassion for his son is one of the many ways in which he was a foreshadowing of who Jesus would become. Uh, listen to what Galatians 4.4 4 says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Joseph's adoption of Jesus was a picture of our adoption as children of God. Joseph's just character was fruit from the holy God. Joseph's just character was fruit of the... Hold on, I wrote that wrong. Joseph's character was fruit of the holy God who would in no way clear the guilty without punishment. Joseph's love for his wife was hint, a hint of the love that Christ would show toward his church. Joseph's obedience to God's commands was a foretaste of the perfect obedience in which Jesus would live. Joseph's faithful worship was the embodiment of one who worships in spirit and in truth as Jesus would call us to live. Joseph's persistent search for his son was a real-life parallel to the parable of the lost sheep and the irrepressible grace of God. So you see, the character that Joseph ultimately sought to embody, whether he realized it or not, was the character of his son. The faith that Jesus held, the faith that Joseph held, was ultimately in the finished work of his adopted son. The love that he showed was a reflective whisper of the love that God the Father has bestowed on all of us who have put our faith in Christ. So really quickly, I want to run through a few things that we can take away from Joseph's involvement in this story um, and how the Lord used him. So the first thing we can take away from this is that the Father has adopted us through Christ into this same family. Advent often reminds me of what Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote at the end of the Jesus Storybook Bible. She said, the most wonderful thing about this story is it's your story too. Listen to Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We who are far off have been brought near, we who are in darkness have seen a great light. We have been lovingly accepted by faith into the family of Abraham, God's family. The heritage of God's faithfulness to his people is now our heritage too. And so are the rascals and the redeemed failures that we talked about earlier. We must not live with blinders on as if our situation or our culture or our problems are unique to human history. We are a part of a millennia-long tradition of worshiping the one true God. 
and the God that was faithful to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, to Joseph, and Mary, and saints throughout the ages is exactly the same as he always has been. We, like them, can rest in the unchanging nature of God. He is our Father, and we are his children. And this is our identity now. Resting in this irrevocable identity that Christ won for us is the foundation upon everything else in our lives should be built. Two, our obedience matters. And this isn't just a cautionary point. It's an opportunity. Your obedience matters to the plan of God somehow. Joseph's life was of ordinary, Joseph's life of ordinary faithful worship proves this. The only thing that makes Joseph and Mary anything but unremarkable is God's sovereign plan being worked out in their lives. The same is true of us. We are unremarkable and plain and God wants to use us to accomplish his work in the world. He has chosen to save us and to use us. To quote the Jesus Storybook Bible again, God loved them with all of his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. So obey his voice. Pursue the holy life to which he calls us. Joseph's character proves the truth of Psalm 1, that the one who delights in and meditates on the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Let us produce the fruit that the Lord saved us to produce. And as we've discussed before, our obedience to God's commands doesn't make him love us more, and it doesn't. It, it can't uh, earn any kind of standing before him. We don't obey to save ourselves or to improve our position with God. We obey because Jesus has saved us and the Father has adopted us and the Spirit has sealed us until the day of redemption. We obey now because we can. And it matters. Three, we are the light of the world. In the same way that Joseph was a shadow of the Father's love toward his adopted children, we now carry the light that Jesus shone into the great darkness. We are his ambassadors until he returns. Every generation since creation has had proponents of God's truth to proclaim it to the next generation. And we are the proponents of our generation. We are the ones that are supposed to do it. We are altogether unremarkable, but the Father who has saved us and adopted us is not. So are we living missionally? Are we sharing our lives with neighbors and friends and family who don't know Christ? Are we telling them the good news of the gospel? Are we serving the king by practically building his kingdom? We must take advantage of the opportunities that the Lord gives us. We must make room in our lives to get up close and personal with people, to show them the love of Christ, to bear their burdens with them, to share the gospel with them. We must build habits into our lives and the lives of our families that expose the light of the gospel to the world around us and to ourselves every day. Walk in the light. Shine the light. And number four, the last, last thing for today, marvel at the sovereign work of God. Stand in awe of the intricate story that God has been weaving together since before the dawn of time. Wonder at his work. With the psalmist, let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul 
and the hungry soul he fills with good things. With Mary, let us proclaim, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who has mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Our amazement at God's work in our lives and in the world around us and throughout history will fuel our obedience to him and our love for him, just like it did for Joseph. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good and you are worthy. And I thank you for the way that Scripture reminds us of that. No matter whose life we look at in the story of Scripture, we see your hand at work in their lives. We see that you love your people and you have been actively at work in their lives since creation. And you are still at work today, and we thank you for that. Um, Lord, help us to consider the truth of the coming of Jesus as we celebrate Advent. Help us to remember who we are in your family and the purpose for which you saved us. Use us for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name.